We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him in the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the God, of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please take your seats. Will you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, We thank you that you are a God who speaks, that you speak to us through your word and that you speak to us through your spirit. And so, God, we pray that you would give every single one of us ears to hear you tonight. Help us to believe that you've brought us here for a reason. Help us to believe that you, Lord, have been looking forward to this time with us, that you have words for us that we need to hear We pray that you would help us to believe that uh, whatever struggles we bring here tonight, whether we're feeling stuck in our lives, whether we are struggling with shame, whether we have some secret secret struggle that no one knows about, uh, whether we are struggling with doubt, struggling to believe that you're even real, that you are there, and that these words that we're about to hear mean anything. God, we pray that you would help all of us to believe that you are present, uh, that, 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 that you are beautiful, and that you find us beautiful because of your great love for us in Jesus. We pray that you would open our hearts this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, good evening. Feels weird to say that on a Sunday, uh, but it's good to be with you today. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here, and we have been working through this sermon series that we've been calling Spiritual Disciplines. And spiritual disciplines are God-given practices that lead us into a deeper experience of God's love and that actually help us to share that love with others. Uh, that, that, that change us and help us to love God more deeply and love people more deeply. Uh, and the word discipline is tough because it, it, it doesn't sound fun, it, and we've been talking about this every week, how disciplines are actually hard. Uh, it's not easy. But the goal of spiritual discipline is actually not to just give us work, but it's to give us freedom. Have you ever seen the documentary, Jiro Dreams of Sushi? It's, if you haven't, you need to see it. It's, it's a, this incredible uh, a documentary about Jiro Ono, who is one of the greatest sushi chefs in the world, in Tokyo. And uh, throughout that documentary, he talks about his apprentice program. Uh, when, when someone apprentices in his restaurant uh, for like a year, all they do is make rice. And uh, he says there's, he doesn't trust them to do anything else. And uh, there's this one point of the documentary where one of his older apprentices had graduated to making egg sushi, egg custard. And he thought it would be easy. After he nailed the rice, he thought he would be able to nail the, the egg sushi pretty easily. But every time he made it, Jiro Ono would say, not good. Right. And he would do it. He would make like three, four, five egg sushis a day, only to hear over and over good, not good. He says at, at, at the end of three months, he's made about two or three hundred egg sushis, and every single one he's made were not good. But this last one that he made, uh, Jiro Ono looked at him and said, this is how it's supposed to be done, and he broke down and wept. Right? Uh, if you want to make amazing sushi... It actually takes work. It actually takes discipline. And that's true of anything that we do in life. And if you're living here in the Bay Area, you know, I mean, we, we have no problem with discipline. We have no problem with hard work here. Uh, and, and this is actually what God wants to give us for our spiritual lives, because there are so many areas in our spiritual lives where we can feel stuck, where we can feel like, you know, that kind of Christian life is for other Christians, Christians who are, who are more mature in their faith. They're not for me. I'm not there yet. That's not what God has gifted me with. That's not what God is calling me to. And what God has been teaching us in this series is that he actually has given us tools, practices that we can use to help us grow in our faith, to experience God's love more richly and more deeply and in a way that transforms us. And so, we've been talking about Sabbath. And we've been talking about how Sabbath is a spiritual discipline that's good for you, but it's actually even good for other people because when you take a Sabbath, you not only give yourself rest, but you also give rest to people who are working for you or people that, that you know, that restaurant that you always go to on Sunday, if they're, they're taking a rest, then those employees all get to take a break. We've been talking about how when you meditate on God's Word, it... it, it turns you into a tree that is a blessing to others, that, that it not only is good for you, but it's good for other people but because God will use you uh, as you fill your mind and your heart with God's Word. He will use you to be a blessing to other people. We've been looking at how when you pray that, uh, that, that you have the opportunity to pray for God's kingdom 
before you pray for your needs. And so you're, you're not only praying for the things that you need in the moment, the daily bread, but you're praying that God's kingdom comes. And when God answers those prayers, kingdom prayers, then not only your life, but your entire city becomes better. We've been looking at how when you fast, you have the opportunity to actually identify with the poor and the hungry and to long deeply for justice in our world. Many of these spiritual disciplines we think of as these individual vertical things that are between us and God, but they're actually horizontal. God uses them to bless others. Last Sunday, we looked at the spiritual discipline of generosity. And that actually, it's harder to see generosity as a discipline that's good for us. It's easy to see how it's good for others. Well, if I am generous with my money, that will help other people, but I don't know how that'll help me. Well, we learned, didn't we, last Sunday, that generosity is actually not something that God wants from us, but for us, because when we're generous, it frees us from being enslaved to our things, enslaved to our money, and it enables to live a more free life. Today, we're going to wrap up this sermon series, and the last spiritual discipline we're going to be looking at is service. And this discipline is similar to generosity in this way, because when we serve other people, it's easy to see how it helps other people, but it might be harder to see how it might help you. And God wants to show us tonight that this is a discipline, that if you cultivate this discipline, it will not only help other people, but maybe even more importantly, it will make you flourish as a human being, because this is how God created us to be, to serve that's, this, is, this is woven not only into our DNA, but actually the fabric of the universe because that's who God is. He is a God who serves. So we're going to break down this passage today in Philippians 2, which really gives us this staggering, beautiful picture of what it means that Jesus became a servant to us. And we're going to break this down to understand why it is such a blessing to serve others. And we're going to do it by looking at three things tonight. We're going to look at what service gives you. Second, we're going to look at what service shows you. And lastly, we're going to look at where service comes from. So let's start by looking at what service gives you. Now, if somebody offered you a choice between staying at a luxury resort for free or working at a luxury resort for free, which, which would you choose? Anybody, anybody choosing working for free? Um, probably not. We would all choose staying at a resort for free because we, we all know, don't we? We know that being served hand and foot is better than serving hand and foot. And what Paul actually is telling us in this passage is that we have it backwards. We have it wrong because we could actually gain more through serving than we can by being served. And he, he says this in verse 2. He says that when you serve people, that you get something back. You get joy. That's why in verse 2, Paul says, make my joy complete. Paul's saying that there is a fullness of joy that can only be experienced when you serve other people, when you do nothing out of selfish ambition, when you do nothing out of vain conceit, when you value other people above yourself, when you look not to your own interests but to the interests of others. When you serve, there's a joy 
that you could experience no other way. So what, what is this joy? Well, Paul goes on to describe the joy he wants for us in verse 2. It's the joy of being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, being one in mind. It's the joy of community. It's the joy of friendship. It's the joy of togetherness. It's what Chris was talking about as he was talking about community groups, the joy of serving people and then finding out that you have amazing friends all of a sudden who are part of your life. David Brooks, who writes for the New York Times, he talks about this time a long time ago when he was on assignment in Kenya and Tanzania, and he brought his family with him. Uh, as he was reporting, and they stayed in these seven different camps, and some of the camps had no electricity, they were very basic, they had no running water, and some of these camps were luxurious, they were resorts, and they, 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 they got served hand and foot. And to his surprise, he found that his family preferred the camps that were more simpler, the cheaper camps, the ones without electricity and running water, uh, because in the cheaper camps, they ate meals in these long communal tables. They got to know everyone. They got to know all the other guests. They got to know everybody who was working at the camp. And then they played soccer with the staff. They had impromptu spear-throwing contests. But in the luxurious camps, everybody sat at their individual tables. All the staff kept a respectful distance from the guests. And he says that it felt cold and sterile. What did the cheap camps have that the luxurious camps didn't? Well, Brooks, he calls it Hamish, which is a Yiddish word that means something that is homey and cozy and unpretentious. When Paul says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and one mind, he's actually not talking about being a church where everybody agrees with one another. He's talking about a church that is cozy and unpretentious. He's talking about creating spaces where people can belong, as we like to say, before they believe, where people can belong even though they disagree and still feel comfortable. He's talking about building deep community. Over the last 20 years, volunteerism has actually declined throughout the United States. In fact, this past year, uh, donations to charitable organizations went up, but volunteerism continued to go down. And there's all sorts of reasons that social scientists offer to explain the decline in volunteerism. One of the, the, the explanations is that home ownership is down. And when people don't own homes, they're less invested in their city. Uh, another explanation, which is really fascinating, is that the gig economy has created less bandwidth for people. And so pe the space that people might have used, time that people might have used to volunteer, they're now using for their side hustle. Right? The interesting thing about all this phenomenon is that it's actually made a big impact not only on people in need, but in entire communities and entire cities. Robert Grimm, who teaches public policy at uh, the University of Maryland, he says that the loss in volunteering is hurting our communities. Listen to what he says. He says, volunteering is the glue that keeps community working. When fewer people engage with each other, that's where you're going to have greater level of social isolation and lower levels of trust. 
in each other. The volunteering, service, it's the glue that keeps community working. And that's true in a city, that's true at work, it's true at church, it's true at home, it's true anywhere. Uh, Brent told me this cool story this past week about Walt Disney. Um, the, the story goes that Walt Disney knew uh, that Disneyland would be excess when one day before the park opened, he accidentally stumbled upon Cinderella picking up trash. And he said, if the princess can get low enough to, to pick up trash and throw it away, if she's so all in in Disneyland that even the princess can do this, he knew that everything was going to be okay. It's, there's something about, about being part of a community where everyone has a part to play, where everyone has a gift to give, where everyone is serving, where everyone is involved, where people are all in that is just exciting. If you've ever experienced that in your family life, if you've ever experienced that at work, if you've ever experienced that in church, if you've ever experienced that in your neighborhood, you know how rare that gift is. See, service gives you the joy of togetherness. It's the social glue that binds us together. So why is it so hard to do? Why is it so hard to serve one another regularly, consistently, in meaningful ways? This brings us to the second thing I want to look at with you tonight, what service shows you. Paul gives us a warning in verse 3. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In the original New Testament Greek, Paul, that word vain conceit actually means empty glory. Empty glory uh, basically means that you are looking for a glory that is not real and that will not satisfy you, and so you continue looking. Uh, empty glory is a glory vacuum, and this is describing a deep need that all of us experience, a need for validation, a need for approval, a need to be noticed, a need to feel valued. We all have this need. And the, the problem with empty glory is that it actually creates an emotional deficit. It, it puts us into emotional debt. Imagine, imagine that your bank makes a mistake, and one day you wake up and you find there's a million dollars in your bank account that, that wasn't there the, the, the morning before. And so you, you start using the money, you start spending like a millionaire, and then a week later, the bank corrects the error, and all of a sudden you have to pay it back because the real world is not monopoly. And you, there is no such thing as a bank error in your favor. All of a sudden, all of a sudden you're in debt. You have to pay that money back. And this is actually what happens with empty glory. When we are looking for an approval and a glory that cannot satisfy us, it puts us in emotional debt, and that makes us into fragile people. That's why we get triggered so easily. That's why we get slighted so easily, because we're actually in emotional debt. We're, we're, we're serving people. We're, we're showing kindness to people, but we expect something in return. We're expecting validation. We're expecting approval. We're expecting to be valued. See, empty glory writes these emotional checks that it cannot cash, and it puts you into debt. Richard Rohr, 
He says the agenda of the false self, and the false self is another way of describing empty glory, the false self, this pretend version of ourself that we think is actually more important than we really are. He says the agenda of the false self is to look good, to pretend. You can tell when the false self takes over because you become easily offended. The false self is offended about every three minutes because it is fragile. When you have empty glory, you will expect people to notice you when you serve them. You will expect results. You will expect serving people to feel good. And when you feel unappreciated, when you feel like you're spinning your wheels and it's doing no good, when serving gets hard, you will lose all your motivation to serve. Serving people will expose your empty glory. Many, many years ago, when I was a director of youth ministry, I had uh, this student who, has, who, who had Tourette's syndrome. And if you're not sure what that is, it's a neurological disorder that uh, creates unwanted verbal noises and physical, uh, physical movements. Uh, it's very difficult, very socially disruptive, and very difficult to live with. And uh, this was a junior high student. And I sat with this young man every Sunday in church uh, because his parents went to another service in another language, and there were no other, no other adults to sit with him. And so I sat with him every Sunday to comfort him when, when he would start making loud noises in the middle of service, and everybody started looking at him. Uh, and it, it, it was, it was, it, he was a beautiful young man who loved Harry Potter, who loved to draw, but he had this condition that was so difficult to live with. And sometimes uh, the stress of living with Tourette's would get so stressful for him that he would lash out. He would lash out at me, he would lash out at other students, he would lash out at other adults, and, uh, and, he would, and when he lashed out, his lashing out would become uncontrolled. Uh, it, was, it was pretty intense. You know, this kid taught me more about patience than anyone else I've ever met, and what he taught me is that I have no patience. You see, serving this young man exposed my empty glory. He taught me that I loved serving people when it was fun and encouraging, and I felt like I was making a difference. But when it was hard, when it was difficult, when it was uncomfortable, I wanted out. He taught me how empty my glory was, how selfish my ambition was, and he taught me how much I needed Jesus. See, Paul knew that the main barrier to our relationships, the, 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 the one thing that is most wrong in our world, in our workplaces, our family, in our city, in our schools, the one thing is empty glory. Because you can't truly serve anyone if you're using your ser service to fill your inner emptiness. If, if you're operating on an emotional deficit, you're, you're never going to be able to actually help people when they need you the most. And isn't that one of the biggest problems that we're facing as a city? The opposite to empty glory is humility. Listen to what he says. He's, Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. This is the answer. How do we deal with this problem of empty glory? Well, we need humility. 
And that, that sounds really hard too. How, wh why would anybody want more humility in their lives? Uh, it almost sounds like Paul is saying, you know, just have lower expectations for yourself or for your life. But notice, Paul doesn't say value yourself below others. He says value others above you. See, if you valued yourself below others, that would be self-hate, and that's not what Paul is calling us to do. He's actually calling you to value other people above yourself. Your value does not need to go down just because someone else's value goes up, and that's humility. When you live with humility, people start to feel valued and you're able to serve them and value them even when you're getting nothing back. Why? Because you're not operating from an emotional deficit. You're not trying to get something from them. You're trying to give something out of what you already have. Rich Villodas, he, uh, he recently wrote this book, Good and Beautiful and Kind. I love the way that he describes humility. He says, having humility enables us to live in freedom, the freedom from having to be perfect, knowing it all, and being it all. That's what humility is. Humility is not thinking that other people are better than you or that you're worse than them. It's actually freedom from having to be perfect, freedom from having to be right and knowing all the right answers and being the person that you think you need to be or that others think you need to be which is why true humility is actually comes from a place of deep confidence. And when you have that, you can really serve people. So how do you get it? How do you get humility? This brings us to the last thing I want to look at with you tonight, where service comes from. There are lots of reasons that we serve people. Sometimes we serve out of necessity. And uh, I used to work at Barnes & Noble, in Jack London Square, just down the street. And when I worked there, I, I served people because I had to, because it was my job. If you ever worked in the service industry, you, you, you know what it is to serve out of necessity. Sometimes we serve people out of duty. We serve people because we've made a commitment to them, because we know it's the right thing to do. Sometimes we serve out of guilt, to make up for ways that we've messed up or to pay back a kindness that we've received. None of these forms of service are spiritual disciplines. These forms of service are not going to help you experience God's love more deeply. See, what makes service a spiritual discipline is that it doesn't come from necessity, it doesn't come from duty, it doesn't come from guilt, it comes from Jesus. That's what makes service a spiritual discipline. Listen to what Paul says in verse 5. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And what follows from verse 5 all the way down to verse 10 is one of the most beautiful pieces of Scripture in the Bible. One of the most beautiful descriptions of what it meant for Jesus to become human and die on a cross. It's, it's actually considered a hymn that Christians sang in their worship services in the first century. And the hymn starts in verse 6 by telling us where Jesus came from. Paul says, who in the very nature of God that's who Jesus was. That's where Jesus came from. Jesus is in the very nature of God, which is to say that Jesus is eternal. 
Jesus had no beginning. Jesus has no end. And from eternity past, he lived in perfect community with God, perfect community with the Father, perfect community with the Holy Spirit, co-equal in every way, in, in power, in glory, in wisdom, in honor, in value. But Paul goes on to say that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. This is kind of confusing, and there's been a lot of debate about what this means, but this is really just a poetic way of saying that Jesus delighted in serving his Father. See, Jesus didn't use equality with God to his advantage. He wasn't selfish with his glory. When, when his Father's will differed with his will, he deferred to the Father. He put the interests of his Father above his own. And this is really staggering because what that means is that service is not something that exists because the world is messed up. It's not the product of conflict or, or things not being as good as they could possibly be. It means that service is actually woven into the fabric of of, of the universe. It's who God is in his very nature. Before anything existed, in eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were united in this community of mutual service and love. The hymn continues in verses 7 through 8 to tell us where Jesus went. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Jesus became a human being, um, but to do so, he emptied himself of his glory, and that's the same Greek word that actually is used to describe empty glory, the thing that all of us struggle with. See, Jesus did not struggle with significance, so much so that he was willing to empty himself of his glory. Where did Jesus find his security if it wasn't in his own glory? It was in his Father's love. It was in the knowledge that his Father loved him no matter what would happen, even if he led him to a cross. And so Paul continues. Jesus emptied himself of everything. He became the very nature of a servant, and he did it all to die on a cross. Why? Well, for messy, broken sinners like you and me. See, Jesus went from the highest place in the universe to the lowest place in the universe, and that is what the cross was for Jesus. For Jesus, the cross was more than just a, a, a place of unbearable torture and pain and death and humiliation and shame. It was that but it was more, it was a place where he received the cosmic judgment of God that we deserve because of all our selfish ambition, because of all of our empty glory, for all the ways that we have turned away from God. And he went to the lowest place. Why? For us, he was punished for our sin. And when he rose again in verses 9 through 10, Paul tells us that he was exalted to the highest place. Somehow, Jesus, who descended from glory to the cross when he was exalted, was more glorious than he had ever been before. Why? Because of the way that he had rescued hopeless sinners like you and me. 
you take this truth into your heart, the truth of what it meant for Jesus to become a servant, for Jesus to empty himself of the glory of heaven, for Jesus to go to the cross, and for Jesus to be exalted in heaven, all because of the way that he died for you and me. It will change everything. It will change everything. See, not all forms of service are equal. You know, I may serve you later after church by giving you directions to find the bathroom. That is not going to change your life. It might give you some temporary relief. <laughs> right? People, we, we, do, we serve each other in all sorts of ways, but not all service is equal. But what if, what if you had cancer and none of the doctors knew what to do? No one knew what to do. There was nothing was working. No, no, nothing was working. And there is someone in the church who is a specialist who, who, who meets you and offers to serve you and finds the treatment that works that saves your life. Well, that kind of service, that might change your life. See, what, what kind of servant do you need Jesus to be for you tonight? Do you need a servant who is just going to make your life a little bit easier, a little bit more comfortable, or do you, have a, do you need a servant who will save you, who will save your life, who will save your soul. And if, if that is the type of servant Jesus is, he will change everything. A few years ago, there was a story in The Guardian about the special bond that cancer survivors have with one another. And the author, who is a cancer survivor, talks about how cancer survivors are able to immediately understand what the other person is going through, which is incredibly powerful when you're going through something as difficult as cancer, but there's a dark side to that bond. And listen to what she, she writes. She says, there's a flip side to the grief cycle of survivalship. Everyone who gets sicker instead of better needs empathy more than I don't need pain, because I'm the lucky one. I'm healthy. And I've had wonderful, caring friends encouraging me the whole time, including people I've known digitally and people who live far away. Returning the love is the least I can do. What this woman is describing is the life-changing power of receiving love when you are in pain. And when you've received that, when you've received the type of humble service that people give you when you are in deep need and you see other people in deep need, you can't help to see that as a privilege, not a burden, not a duty, not, not something that you're guilty about, but a privilege to, to, to speak into that life's, person's life and to Show care and love to that person because you've received great love. And you see, a Christian is essentially a spiritual survivor. We've survived the ruin of sin. We've survived our own empty glory. We've survived our own selfish ambition. We have survived our own sin and brokenness. But instead of leaving us to die, Jesus rescued us. We've re received the most extravagant kindness from Jesus, and this creates a special bond, not only with one another, but with every other messy, broken person in our city and in our world. And God is calling us to go out, to go out and to love as we have been loved. And that's what this table represents. It's a table of grace 
not for people who have everything put together, not for people who have figured everything out and they're doing just fine. This is a table for people with great need. This is a table for people who need a savior. And it's a table that gives life to those who have no other hope. And it's a table that bonds you to one another and sends you to be God's servants to all who are hurting in our city. On the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Eat of it in remembrance of me. And in the same manner after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We've asked you for many, many things throughout our lives, but none of us could have asked for Jesus. None of us could have asked that you would send your only begotten son from heaven to a cross and from the cross to a throne to save us and to give us glory. And so we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his life. We thank you for his body broken and his blood shed. And as we, we pray that as we come to this table, Lord, that you would build us up, that we would be so secure in this gospel that we would be freed from the need to be per perfect, freed, Lord, from all our empty glory, freed to be used by you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.